Welcome to Testers Island Discs, your most musical guide to the world of software testing. My name's Neil Studd, and I'll be your castaway companion. Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Testers Island Discs, where the latest guest on this long hot summer is Matthew Breton. Matt is somebody who's made his way through a variety of industries, starting from the video games industry, working with a diverse range of systems, and now finding himself as the test team lead at Rental Cars in Manchester. He's somebody who has a bag of podcasting experience. He's a regular contributor on the Let's Talk About Tests Baby podcast, and he's paired with me before on the screen testing podcast to talk about the joy of hackers. And Matt is somebody who's a host of a variety of technical workshops. He gave his first workshop at last year's Test Bash Manchester, and he's on the programme at the inaugural Test.Bash, which is being held in Manchester next month, where he'll be giving his talk, You Can Be a Toolsmith Too. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Oh, thank you. Uh, that was an awesome intro. <laughs> awesome to listen to. <laughs> I mentioned that you started your career with video games. How did that come about? I, I played a lot of video games when I was younger. And uh, when I was looking at a list of degrees to do, uh, it sounded cool. Literally, that's how it went. And I knew it involved some kind of programming or design. Um, so I did a computer games technology degree, which involved a bit of programming and design. So I wanted to get into being a games programmer. And um, games testing is a way to get into that industry. It's quite commonly known about way, you know, traditional way that people start in the companies. But originally, I wasn't necessarily looking just for that because I was like, I want a, you know, a fine upstanding job. I want to get you know, just a programming job or something where I can earn some money and have a decent career. So it wasn't just about games. It was literally more like, I just need a job. And I went to lots of interviews of different programming jobs. And I also you know, applied for this games testing job at Sony. And that was the job I got. And I was just that keen to have a job out of university. I just took it. And obviously I wanted to work on games. So that's yeah. kind of how it all began. I've heard conflicting reports from the games industry. I mean, to, to many, it, it seems like a dream. You know, you, you get to play games for a living. It sounds great. On the other hand, I hear about long hours, tight deadlines, in places there's low pay as well. Did you go into it with your eyes open? Did you know what to expect? And what was the reality of the situation? Yeah, like like you say, even I knew back then that um, game testing is not well thought of. But to be honest, yeah, it was pretty fun. What people think, it's not that far from it because the best period of my work was going in to get to play my favourite games before anyone else does um, and be credited on them and, and all that kind of stuff. So sometimes it was awesome, but at the same time, I used to love giving this um, analogy about, imagine you're a chocolate taster, you love chocolate. You're going to get sick of chocolate very quickly if you're having to test it all the time, particularly when they're like, oh, we've made this new one, but it's not you know quite there yet. We've put some weird things in it. You get really sick of eating chocolate, so... Yeah, I used to come home and people be like, oh, do you want to play some games and stuff? I'm like, no, I've kind of been doing that all week. <laughs> and obviously you don't play the best games all the time. Uh, you're playing some awful knockoff games and you know really bad builds. And It's interesting as well because you get to see games before they've been released and sometimes there's things that never get public that you get to see, which is quite interesting. But at the same time, you're also doing a lot of awful, awful stuff. And yeah, like you say, there's... It's not got a good uh, reputation for crunch time and things. And the poor pay as well, because testers in that industry, I think, are doing more interesting and more difficult and challenging testing sometimes than the rest of us, but they're paying, being paid way less for it. And it's partly because they know everyone wants to do that job, so they don't need to be competitive because they, they could just take the attitude of, well, if you don't want to work here, we'll find someone else who wants to do your job. So so it's, it's good and bad. It's, like, it's really yeah. fun. There's uh, great people to work with, and it's a really interesting industry, but... It's a bit of a grind too, 
Yeah, it's not an industry that I've worked in full-time professionally before. I did a little bit of, uh, in my spare time for a few years, I was a researcher for the Football Manager Games, which were previously known as Championship Manager. Basically, I was the official club researcher for Ipswich Town, the, the team that I support. <laughs> cool. Basically, I had to report into them on yeah, every little minuscule detail about like youth team players, you know, giving, you know, is this new... 17 year old what's his heading ability out of 20 and you know uh, it at times it does suck the joy out of it but yeah it's something i have a passion for so it's it's nice to combine those things sometimes now you're far enough away from the the games industry itself do you still find yourself playing a lot of games these days uh yeah yeah i definitely i play more of them than i did when i was testing actually i mean it's harder now i'm an adult (laughs) i'd I'd love to go back to it as well i'd love to go back to actually working on it professionally you obviously must get to work on a lot of cutting-edge technology. You know, you've, you've got various um, devices and adapters that, that plug into game systems these days. You know, be it VR, um, AR, that sort of thing. Is there anything in particular that you remember testing either early and ahead of the game, or that was particularly challenging to test? Um, yeah, three D testing used to give headaches. Uh, <laughs> hmm. I might say three D. Whenever people listen to this podcast, it might um, be a different thing, actually, to be fair. But um, at the time, it was the 3D glasses that were a big thing. It's not such a big thing anymore. It's kind of going out of fashion now. But um, they used to have what was called active 3D, where the glasses themselves would have screens on them. So they would be creating the 3D image. What that meant it could do, though, which is really cool, interesting test, though, was that you could play um, what's called a split screen game. So if you're playing two players, you've usually got two different screens. And you could have one TV, and both of you would see different images for the whole screen, which is really cool. Uh, that was really cool to see, but um, like I say, everyone used to get headaches from testing that, so not many people could do a full shift testing it. And so, yeah, I didn't really like testing that for that reason. But it did have some, also, from a tester's perspective, it had um, particular bugs and things that you would look for that were to do with the 3D technology and how you can create images and the different effects that that can have. Augmented reality, uh, motion control, all that kind of stuff. There's, there's always interesting, like, problems you'd be looking for now it's about time to get on to the business of your song selections uh, you're somebody who has uh, picked and chosen their songs quite carefully uh, there have been some revisions as, we, as we've got closer to the recording date yep. you actually almost had a, a video game connection in your song choices that didn't quite make it do you want to give it an honourable mention yeah so I picked um, a song called Hell March by a guy called Frank Kopaki he's a really cool video game composer that I really liked uh, for the Commander Conquer series and he also did uh, Blade Runner funnily enough and um, the Dune games I took it out because I was like I want to pick some things that are kind of nicer to listen to I didn't think that was particularly like, nice to listen to like I like it but yeah I thought I'll swap it for something that I think's a bit nicer <laughs> yeah and there's there's nothing much nicer or that takes you back to a time and place quite like your first song choice if you'd like to tell us what that is yeah so I believe this is the first artist that's been chosen twice or the first song but it's the Stan Bush with the touch. It's because of the Transformers movie from the 1980s. So the songs I've picked are like a progression of as I've grown up and the different kind of time periods for me. It reminds me of. This reminds me of being a kid because I used to have this on tape cassette. Uh, the, the, used to have the Transformers movie on tape cassette. And this is like one of the best scenes in the film.
That was Stan Bush with The Touch. As Matt mentioned, that was the first song to actually be submitted twice. The other person who's picked The Touch is yet to appear on the podcast. So uh, Matt gets first dibs to get that on the island. Awesome. <laughs> so I mentioned at the top that your first workshop that you gave was last year at Test Bash Manchester, getting started with web API testing. Now, you did an episode of the Let's Talk About Test Baby podcast straight after that, where you did a retrospective on how that went. But sort of a year further down the line, in hindsight, how do you, how do you think that went? So this sounds really arrogant thing to say, but I'm honestly pretty happy with it. Like, I didn't need to change much, and I'm still quite happy with it, because I've, I've run it again at the London Tester Gathering uh, mm-hmm. workshops, and um, I didn't change it. Um, I ran it basically the same, and again, got really positive feedback. I did get some negative feedback, like good constructive criticism, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. It was not. Wasn't anything that I was that I felt I needed to have a drastic. It was more how I was presenting myself uh, and talking through things. But the content of the workshop didn't need to massively change. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I was pretty happy with it. And I think it's because I just spent a lot of time preparing and designing and practicing it. I had actually attended other people's workshops and observed how they ran them and what worked and what didn't and what I liked and preferred about them. So if anything, I probably should have taken it easier as it was my first time, but that's not really me. Like I had to, I had to put that much effort into it. I wanted to make it awesome. On the subject of getting feedback um, and giving feedback after a, a talk or a workshop, how do you prefer to solicit that? Do you like it? Do you like to request people to give you feedback? Do you like to let them come to you? Do you prefer it if conference organisers take care of collecting that feedback centrally? I hadn't thought about it much when I was designing the workshop, just because I was so focused on just getting it done well the first time. I hadn't really thought about what about if I run it again and how I'm going to get feedback and improve it. But I don't. I think I don't really mind. I mean, I think if you just like I say, if you don't plan how you're going to get feedback, then you're probably not going to get very good feedback. So because I hadn't really planned it, there probably are some things that could be improved. But I don't think the way I've run it and the way I've planned it out, I haven't got that feedback. Perhaps. Hmm. But then again. I kind of feel confident that people are giving me feedback without even asking for it. So I kind of feel somewhat confident people would have at least given me some more critical feedback because it'd get some. It'd be nice if organizers did it for you, but I think you probably should think about it. But like I say, it's difficult when you do it the first time because I think, you fo- at least for me, I was so focused on just getting it done mm. and making it great the first time. I wasn't really thinking about what if it wasn't good, how I'm going to improve it next. I didn't really think have this plan in my head to run it lots and lots of times or anything. And you mentioned that you ran it again this year at the London Tester Gathering workshops. Uh, you say it was pretty much plain sailing as well? Yeah, same again, really. Um, again, got some good, very good constructive feedback, but nothing that I, I would massively change about the content of the workshop, at least. So, mm. yeah. Were you presenting on the first day? Yes, I was on the afternoon the first day, which I mm. actually prefer. I hate, I hate having to wait. <laughs> I'd rather get it over and done with and then I can kind of like move on. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm touch and go. I, I like to present late in a conference because you can then like tie things together nicely. Yeah, it was really good. I got the chance to speak last at Philadelphia last year, which is great because I could draw parallels back to what I come before. But yeah, it does leave you on edge for the for the rest of the event. Yeah, no, I, I get what you mean because I am thinking about that for test.bash that I'm like, oh, it's kind of good that some of the talks happening before there might be some things I can tie in. So yeah, that, that is nice, but at the same time, I'd rather have got it out of the way and done with <laughs> yeah, as soon as possible. So once your talk was done, were you able to experience any of the other workshops with a, with a clear head? Yeah, I mean, I did go to Marton's uh, workshop on Jest. 
And I also went the next day, I went to Liz's workshop on BDD with Kenevin and Swarnim's workshop on um, XUI tests. I actually find it useful observing how different people teach, basically, and how they design their workshops. So that's one thing I get out of it. The other thing is some of these things I have some knowledge of. So like automation, obviously, I've got some experience with. But maybe I don't know about the specific tools that they're showing. So it was interesting to show, in Martin's, Martin's case, he was showing Jest. And in Swarnam's case, he was showing XCR UI tests. So I've never seen anything about those tools before or the languages they're using. Kind of a nice confidence boost to myself as well, knowing that, oh, yeah, I could probably pick these things up. Now I know a bit about them. And we're going to talk a bit more about presenting technical content, particularly at a technically focused event such as Test.Bash, Bash, in the next section after we hear, Matt, about your second song selection. So my second song is I Want to Be Adored by the Stone Roses. Uh, I picked the song because I wanted some song from Manchester, um, because that's what I grew up with. My brothers particularly, they were, they were massively into the Stone Roses, the Oasis, Happy Mondays, New Order all that kind of stuff. And I just wanted to pick something that kind of summarized that kind of period from, of my life. And I felt like Oasis is like a very obvious go-to. The Stone Roses particularly as well has a nice strong connection to me because Ian Brown, the singer, my gran uh, worked with him briefly when he was, before he was famous, before like the band was big or anything, he was working in the civil service, delivering the, um, for the computers, you have the punch hole cards. And yeah. He used to deliver those in the office she was working in. So it was a really cool little local connection for me. was the Stone Roses with I Want to Be Adored. Now the weeks are counting down. We're almost at the first ever test.bash event, which is a technically focused test bash, very different from the, the broader topics that we get on a main stage normally. What was it particularly about test.bash that made you want to apply for it? I think because I, I have a technical background, having bit, grown up as a programmer originally. So I feel like I've got more relevant things to share. And I wanted to talk at TestBash for a while, but just not had an interesting, different idea. I feel like a lot of the people, things people are talking about, I'm like, oh, I could talk about those things too, but I can't think how I'm going to give a different take on it. Um, and I just had this idea come up, and I was just like, I'm going to submit that before I convince myself not to. Which, you know, and I, I'm going to admit now, I kind of regret, because I'm like, oh, why did I do that? But I'm kind of glad I did. Because <laughs> I was like, I think I've got something to share. I've, I've got some own experiences with these more technical aspects, and I think that'll be interesting, hopefully. So it's an event that's themed around a higher-than-usual level of technical content, Aside from that technical content being present in your talk, is there anything else that you have to think about differently when prepping for an event like Test.Bash? I mean, it's difficult for me to say because I've not done any other uh, major conference or any other mm. talk, so, or any type of talk. So I don't think so. I've done talks in general where they've not been technical, perhaps, but most things I generally tend to talk about are technical. So the workshop is a lot more work and a different kind of pressure because 
I think you have more time to play with, so you're, you're having to make sure you've got all the time covered. And as well, you can kind of, to some extent, risk playing with ideas a bit more that might not make sense, or you, you tend to want to make more content than you need and change it about a bit, depending on how the audience goes. Whereas I think a conference talk is typically less interactive in general, so you kind of have to make a good script and kind of generally stick to it, I feel at least, in my opinion. My main concern is that while I could make the workshop more adaptable to the audience, I can't really alter this talk midway through too much, so I really need to kind of nail it a bit more. Yeah, I guess that makes it easier to pace to some extent, but in the same way as they say in the movies, you should never work with children or animals at a conference, live demos is one of those things that you would add to that list. Are you planning to have one, and is there a backup for if the worst happens? No, absolutely not. I don't. Uh, well, I'm not going to say I don't do live demos, but I'm very aware of that risk, so no, I'm not intending to. My main technical concern is just the slides, but even then I'm prepared not to have them. Like, you never know if the power grid goes down or something ridiculous, so... And also, I'd love to go over the top and have a lot more dynamic swings in my talk, but given this is my first time doing um, Test Bash or any major conference and kind of playing it safe. <laughs> yeah, I mentioned, I mentioned in the last episode that I'm doing a talk at Cambridge University next month, and I'm hoping to have an interactive element in there, which is going to involve kind of a PowerPoint karaoke type thing where the attendees get to submit stuff in real time as the talk is going on, which is going to involve building a web app to let them do that. And I might just drop the entire thing because it all sounds like just a problem waiting to happen. <laughs> yeah, like it sounds fun though. I, I like doing yeah. stuff like that. And I, I like to make it more engaging because I really hate talking to people. But mm. at the same time, I'm trying to consider myself and think, uh, I kind of, it's my first time. I should be easy on myself. I should be trying to do too much at once. And we'll talk more about the content of your talk itself in the next section. But before that, there's a small matter of your third song choice. Yeah, so my third song choice is um, Run to the Hills by Iron Maiden. Uh, particularly very relevant uh, because I just saw them last night um, in Manchester. <laughs> uh, it was awesome. And they actually played the song as well. I picked this particular song. So I, I loved like I loved them. Um, basically, this album, the album this song's off, I got sent it when I was um, in uh, secondary school. It was like the first album I listened to, like first piece of music I listened to, and suddenly was like, oh, I'm so into this. Like, I never cared about listening to music much before that, really. Like, my brothers listened to a lot and have had some influences before, but I didn't really care about, oh, I'm going to listen to this album or anything. And this is the first time I started really listening to a particular band as well. So I bought all of their albums, I've seen them three times, I love them. I bought loads of t shirts and everything. This song, I've picked it because it's probably the most one of the most well-known ones. Maybe not the most, but it's just a good, very fast-paced, very fun kind of song. And kind of summarizes that band really well.
that was Run to the Hills by Iron Maiden and it's amazing that 21 episodes in with the amount of rock and metal we've had that's the first Iron Maiden pick on the podcast so Matt let's talk a little bit about your talk at test.bash uh, it's titled You Can Be a Toolsmith Too we had Mark Winteringham on the last episode who brought up the term of toolsmith when he was talking about the idea of automation in testing what's your definition of what a toolsmith is and what they do it's probably going to be quite similar to Mark's and also I think Richard Bradshaw has spoken about this quite a bit as well which is why I kind of come across the term as well but I do relate a lot to it because I've had some experience doing it without even realising I was doing it. I kind of refer to and I think Richard has done this as well because I have copied this from him but uh, Rob Lambert uh, in the Tester Types ebook that covers all the different uh, testing monsters for Ministry of Testing. On the Automator example he has a little section that says a toolsmith knows how to code and has an understanding of testing, often a deep understanding and experience of testing. They solve testing problems with tools and not just automate tests. If it needs doing, they'll find the right tools to do it. So that nicely summarizes what a toolsmith is to me, though I would add an amendment or an extension to that, that I don't think you just have to use code to make tools, potentially. You could just learn about tools and then reuse them or misuse them, potentially or combine them and things, or get other people to kind of solve problems for you. But in general, it's trying to not just accept the status quo a little bit with, with the technical side. There's more to more to being able to assist testing than just Selenium tests or whatever. Yeah, when you're thinking about tools, and particularly tools that don't involve coding, I think of services like If This Then That, which is a, a web-based service that I'll link to in the show notes, where basically you can just plug bits of the internet together to do things that you wouldn't expect. Like, for example, when a particular Twitter account makes a tweet that mentions a particular word, then send an email to your inbox telling you that something's happening. Uh, that's something I use for a, a Twitter account that like one in a hundred of their messages is really, really relevant to me, but the rest are nonsense. So I just have an if this and that recipe that says, email Neil when this thing happens. And uh, yeah, that's a lot of my day reading Twitter cut out really easily. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah, exactly like that. And so my talk is basically about how people probably don't even realize they're doing this already or that they could do this and trying to encourage people to kind of recognize they're doing it and do more of it. So some examples will be creating test data. So you, you can use, this is kind of referring to code a little bit again, but you can use code to quickly generate a lot of test data for you to then use in your testing rather than having to manually create it all the time. Uh, quickly setting up test environments and get them in certain states or things like that or performing like loads of checks really rapidly and I don't mean um, a Selenium check I just mean it's just something that you want to quickly do in five minutes it's not it's not like I'm going to run this every time we do a regression test or whatever or every time we do a release it's just a, I'm going to quickly just check this but I want to check a thousand things at once that would take me ages manually a lot of what I've used it for recently is gathering data from production from databases or from analytics tools and things um, it lets you test in production effectively by going what can I learn from what's going on in the production environment? I think I can remember the first ever bit of what I would call tooling that I ever wrote and it was in, it was in VB script and funnily enough I still find myself using it occasionally from time to time. It was a simple macro that I could trigger with a keyboard shortcut that would open an alert box and basically I could type in an issue number in Jira into this alert box and it would jump straight into Jira with that issue open so rather than having to open a browser, go to Jira 
find the search box, type in a number. I could just hit a shortcut, type a number in, and I was I was in there. And when I had was working with several different Jira systems, mm-hmm. like it would parse the issue number that I entered and work out which Jira it needed to go to. It's this little thing that I probably spent an hour writing, and I probably used it for hundreds of hours over time. It wouldn't have been the most elegant code in the world, and I guess that brings us back to the sort of the debate of whether everyone should learn to code as a tester. We tend to say, particularly with automation code, that we should treat automation like it's production code. And I think that's a good idea. But when we're talking about tooling, do you think that we have to pay such stringent attention to the, the elegance of our code? Uh, no, basically. <laughs> I think I think that's overrated. It's important. People should be aware of that they're not doing very good code, potentially. But they shouldn't feel bad for that. And they shouldn't think that there's no value. So it's a bit of an education piece, I think, but I don't think it's as important sometimes as people might make out. It really depends, is the thing. It's about how people are going to use it because people can get very dangerous, right? If you learn how to use things but not quite in the right way, you could potentially end up start wasting a lot of time if you use it the wrong way, basically. But if you're using it for your personal use, I don't think it matters. It only matters to you then because a lot of what we talk about in good coding practices and what is nice, good code we typically referring to for maintenance purposes or for being able to share it with other people so they can learn how to use it or if you're not there they know how to fix or change it but if it's only for you then it only matters to you so as long as you can understand it it doesn't really matter what other people think clean the code is as long as it's clean to you yeah i have one of my first ever PHP projects that I wrote was a personal project that I, did, that I did in about 2005 that I still need to support to some extent. And every time I look at this code that me 13 years ago wrote, I think, Neil, what were you doing? And, and there's a part of me that thinks I should just throw the thing away and start again. But again, that's entirely on me because I'm the one who's maintaining it. At the point in which this becomes too much of a burden to maintain, then I decide what value it's still giving me. I, th- I think there is more flexibility in tooling than there is in, in standard automation as such. There are a variety of sort of entry-level, all-purpose, general-use languages out there these days that are pretty much interchangeable for day-to-day jobs for tooling, things like Python, uh, Ruby, Java. Is there one of those in particular that you started with, and is that still like a favorite of yours, or do you, do you switch and change? I find this this kind of question really difficult to answer because I did my computer science degree, effectively. So it was called Computer Games Technology, but really underneath it was just a computer science degree. And before I did that, I had some awareness of code. I'd obviously played around with computers and things a bit, so I'd I'd obviously seen things. I was kind of used to seeing things. So in the first year of that course, we were learning Java, C, Basic, quite a variety, quite and some of it quite advanced. And it kind of went over my head, obviously, some of of it at the time. And obviously with three years, I kind of got used to more of it. And then later on in my career, I came across things like Lua, Python, Bash, Ruby, and those things for me were much easier to get into, but I already had some experience from Java and C and C++ and things, so it was easy for me to use those things. Referring to my experience to give other people advice is difficult because I'm basically say, like saying, oh, you should do a computer science degree, I, and I don't think that's possible for everybody or it's not really the right thing for everyone. But at the same time, I, I do get asked this a lot and I do have an answer, which is generally that I prefer telling people to start with Python or something like that because it nicely allows people to focus on the basics of commands, variables, methods, and so on, without having to learn a lot of the advanced stuff straight away. Because languages such as Java or C Sharp, or even more advanced ones like C, or God help you if you're doing this assembly, um, 
they can be quite confusing as a newbie because there's a lot of things that aren't explained to you that you need to type out and it can't be explained to you because you don't understand basic concepts yet and to understand something you first need to understand simplified examples so if you take a subject like maths at school you don't start with learning negative numbers or algebra you know in primary school you're not learning algebra or negative numbers even you're starting with simple numbers, not even zero, right? At first, you're not even taught about zeros. You're slowly introduced to these concepts. So once you understand one bit, then other parts of it, you can start to understand. You can't just jump straight into the advanced topics. I mean, some people can, but maybe that's because they've got some experience with those things already somehow. So it's being aware of that for me. If someone's completely new to programming and computers, I would generally be steering them towards Python because it's more like, writing English effectively like it's more like writing algebra and it lets you look get straight into learning the coding mentality without bogging you down with advanced subjects that may never be useful to you in the first place anyway because in Java you're having to write a lot of syntax that is important for concepts like object orientation but you may never have to write nicely object orientated code so it's kind of like it might not be ever useful to you and it's going to attack your confidence in learning and that's critical to me. It's important that you're able to build your confidence to then keep learning. Yeah, I think Python is probably the one that I found easiest to pick up straight away. I think it, there's a lot of resources out there to help with learning it. Uh, I went on a, a training course by tester Christopher Nordstrom, uh, who runs a Python for testers course that was really well explained. I'll put some links to those resources in the show notes. I think I think whatever it is that you choose to start with, there are lots of sort of transferable coding concepts, be it yeah, functions, well-encapsulated code, uh, extending methods, that sort of thing, that you could pick up regardless of what language you use. And I think, yeah, anything that, that keeps you as far away from things like compilers and debuggers for as long as possible is is very useful in the early stages. Yeah. Um, what I not, don't look forward to answering a question like this is people just kind of taking my word for it and going, all right, Python, I should just <laughs> learn that, right? Because it's really contextual. In different situations, there may be other languages that make more sense. So it's like the learning environment is really important. So your environment might be that you work with a lot of developers who develop in Java, let's say. And those developers might be very good at um, taking the time to teach you and help you. And the big thing for me is having someone that acts that teacher role, right? Where they, they understand your level, they understand where you're struggling and how close you are and so they can give you that confidence to know when you've almost understood something and you're about to get it because you don't know that sometimes you're struggling with something and you're just like oh, I don't get this like it doesn't work ever and maybe I'll never get it and literally like if you spent two more minutes you would suddenly work and you'd feel much better about it and sometimes you need a teacher there to know that to keep pushing you sometimes when you're feeling a bit like giving like giving up another element as well is something that helps your confidence at least in my opinion is being able to use it for something um useful to you like now just doing like random courses online and exercises isn't very motivating at least to me because i just feel like yeah i've done that but i don't know why that's useful whereas if i'm trying to use it at my work i know why this is useful to me so if i manage to be able to use it at my work it's a it's an easier way to motivate myself to keep attacking it basically when i struggle with it you want to try and keep the motivation basically and we'll talk a bit more about the day-to-day -day role of a toolsmith after we hear your penultimate song selection. Yeah, so my next song is Free Will by Rush. It's following my theme of it kind of representing different stages of my life. Uh, Rush I got into when I started university. Again, they were another band that I really, really got into, bought a lot of the different albums. Um, 
still listen to them today. And I've seen them in concert, I think, three times now. I really like this song, basically. <laughs> That was Rush with Free Will. Now, Matt, you mentioned your personal journey of becoming a toolsmith and of picking up languages and learning different programming concepts. That obviously is something that you're doing with technically a, a tester's hat on. How supportive have you found developers that you've worked with to be in your pursuit of learning to be somewhat of a developer yourself? <laughs> Some aren't. That's kind of humans, really. Like It's all about finding your allies. And sometimes you need to do things even if people don't really support you or don't get why you're trying to do it. You kind of need to do it anyway sometimes. It's difficult to convince people. But um, yeah, I mean, I've found plenty of developers that support me, that are friendly, that um, even if they don't get what I'm trying to do, they'll, they'll try and help me anyway. Or they've introduced me to things that they've been like, oh, look at this thing, it's really cool. I'd really love you to learn it, even though I'm like, oh, I have no idea if that's useful to me, but why not? But then there's other developers who've not, they've not really got why. I'm trying to do whatever I'm trying to do at the time. So depends. I wouldn't like to tar them all the same brush, basically, because they're all there's all kinds of different developer. But I think the thing with developers in general is that they've got into that job because they love building and solving problems. So as long as you're trying to approach them in that with that in mind, that asking them, oh, can you help me solve this problem? They will typically love to help you with that if it's something that they get why you're coming to them about it. Yeah, it's something you have to approach on a case-by-case -case basis. I think with any given developer, you need to, first of all, as we said in the previous section, reassure them that you're not creating a load of code that they're going to have to support themselves, that, that they need to concern themselves over. If, if it's something you're just doing for personal tooling, uh, I think they, that you can help them to see the benefit. Another thing with a developer is it can just be personal preference. So, for example, I discovered an issue in our software yesterday, and rather than 